It's time for Cadillac On Call on News Radio 610 KONA. It's your chance to learn valuable health information right here in our community. Now, the host of Cadillac On Call, here's Jim Hall. Hello and welcome to Cadillac On Call presented by the Cadillac Foundation. Each week we are here to share with you the latest health news and information in our community of interest to you. Clearly, COVID has been that dominant topic of the past two years, and today we will get you updated on the latest, including when masks will no longer be required in indoor settings and how we can safely move ahead as the pandemic evolves into an endemic. Also today, we'll meet an impressive young woman who's bringing mental health into sharp focus, especially among children and teens, and we'll check in with one of the most dedicated group of volunteers in the Tri-Cities whose gifts of time and treasure benefit patients at Catholic Regional Medical Center. But first, as we have virtually every week for the past, gosh, 104 weeks, I guess, the latest on COVID with Heather Hill, the Communicable Disease Program Manager with the Benton Franklin Health District. And Heather, I guess the most newsworthy news that we have to share today is that the relaxing of the indoor mask requirement has now been moved up to March 12th in the state of Washington, which means it will take effect in schools on March 14th. I know all of this has been data dependent, and it sounds like that data continues to keep moving in the right direction. You are exactly right, Jim. You know, comparing last week to this week, case rates in in both counties have significantly dropped. Benton County is currently at 164 per 100,000 over 14 days. And Franklin County is at 195 over the same 14 days. And last week, we were significantly higher. So it's, it's definitely a trend that we are, are appreciating. Our testing sites are certainly seeing a, a decrease in the number of people utilizing the CDC West test site as well as the Richland test site. And again, the um, positivity rates continue to decrease there. But again, it's really important to remember that there's a lot of at-home testing being done that are not necessarily reported to us. But this data really does give us, I, I think, a good trend. It gives us some good information to rely upon that our community is trending in the right directions. You know, as well as hospitalizations, um, they are down as well, down by about 14.75% from um, the previous seven days. And that is certainly the data that we look at specifically, um, especially as we've gotten farther along this pandemic and and we're starting to look at data a little bit different. Uh, We're looking at those hospitalization rates because we know that is really the trigger that tells us whether um, we're in a healthy situation. If, If we have enough room in the hospital to take care of all of our medical needs, then that's a a good way to be. And there were certainly times during this uh, pandemic where our hospitals were extremely stressed, and that's when we were really needing to focus on our community mitigation strategies to get those rates down. And now we're just honestly in a a significantly much better place than we were even a few weeks ago. And I was going to say that one statistic on the hospitalizations I can share from where I work at Cadillac today, I believe the number of hospitalized COVID patients was 12, I believe. And thankfully, none of those were in the intensive care unit, which is great news, whereas I think it was just barely a month to six weeks ago, those uh, hospitalized numbers were in the mid-70s, and the ICU was probably at least a third to half full of COVID patients. So 
I guess that's what we're talking about with these data. I know you've always preached this throughout this pandemic that not only has it been data over time on case rates, but now as you add this Omicron, it's it's more it's become more of what pressure is this putting on the hospital? So it's all a uh, an aggregate of all the data, right? Right. You know, we've we've focused so much on a lot of the little details of the data and you know, a lot of people focus on the day-to-day data and watch our dashboards very, very closely. And again, we've always said, don't look at the day-to-day, you know, certainly look over a period of time to, to get that trending information, which just brings us to where we are now with regard to our data dashboard starting um, this month already. Because of the way we're trending, we want to make sure we're getting the most um, significant information on the data out to our community. And rather than looking at the, the little bit, you know, how it changes day to day to day, we will be um, putting our data out on the dashboard on Tuesdays and Thursdays. So you'll see case rates and hospitalization rates updated every Tuesday and Thursday. And then on Thursday, we will update with the addition of the, the deaths for the week. So our last death um, data was from last Friday where we had, I believe it was seven deaths to report. And then uh, this Thursday, tomorrow, we will publish our most recent death data. So you'll definitely see a change as you're looking at our data dashboard. But you can certainly go to the Washington State Department of Health if you want to look at a little bit more detail that they will continue to publish on their dashboards. And I was going to say, you mentioned the, the, the one statistic that is most troubling, and, and that's the deaths. And while I know the cases have been coming down and there are milder cases, for those vulnerable populations, uh, that, pro- I guess, is proof that uh, COVID can be very serious. And, and so hopefully are we going to start seeing the deaths come down, too? Because I know seven in a week is still a high number. I, I agree. You know, when we look at deaths related to flu, which is, you know, a, a kind of a seasonal respiratory virus, we don't see that many deaths typically in a week. We don't see this many deaths that we've experienced with COVID, certainly in, in influenza in any year. So when we're seeing seven deaths reported in a week, that is still significant and a reminder to us that when COVID does infect that vulnerable person, it can certainly lead to death. And, and that brings us back to our mitigation strategies that we've stressed throughout this. And we really want people to remember now's not the time to let our guard down. COVID, as we've said time and time again, COVID isn't going away as soon as the 12th rolls around and we don't have to wear masks in, in quite a few places anymore. It's going to stay with us, and those vulnerable people will continue to be at risk, plus the fact we really don't know what the next variant is um, that's going to come along. Ongoing, um, you know, sequencing is happening to see what kind of variants are out there, and we will certainly be watching that kind of data very, very closely because we don't want people to get complacent and let their guard down just in case a new variant that is, you know, has a high death rate, high transmission comes around, we can't predict that at this point. But again, we need to be flexible enough to ramp up those mitigation strategies again, should we need to in the future. Relative to the to the variants that you talked about and, and the fact that we're moving toward this word endemic as opposed to pandemic, 
maybe just give a brief primer before we go to our break that of what that means and of, of okay, say there is a variant that, that comes, why, what is, what about that allows us to go to this endemic stage? When we look at uh, an organism and want to say it's in an, an, an endemic stage, that really means that we've kind of hit that baseline rate of infection, that number of disease cases that you kind of expect. It doesn't fluctuate a whole lot, but I think what people misinterpret that as being, well, then it's a less severe situation. But as we've said before, there are countries where tuberculosis is endemic. Tuberculosis is a severe life-threatening illness, but it's still at endemic rates in some countries. Or malaria is endemic in certain countries, and malaria is an extremely severe disease, um, causes a lot of death. So again, don't don't look at the word endemic and think, oh, it's less severe. It just means it's kind of hit the baseline number of cases that you would expect to see. That becomes our baseline, and then we watch for significant spikes up or, of course, changes in the variant that would increase the rates significantly. We're visiting with Heather Hill at the Benton Franklin Health District. She has one more segment of her time to share with us, and we'll talk more with Heather about the latest and what we can do relative to the lifting of these indoor requirements for masks, and we'll do that right after this. You're listening to Cadillac On Call on 610 KONA. This program provides general information only. Any comments or information presented are strictly for educational purposes. Cadillac and 610 KONA do not endorse any of the suggestions made by the presenter or callers. Now back to Cadillac On Call. Once again, Jim Hall. Welcome back to Catholic on Call, presented by the Catholic Foundation, and we are visiting with Heather Hill at the Benton Franklin Health District. And Heather, uh, we touched at the top of the program that the governor has moved up the requirement that men or the requirement that masks be worn, lifting that, I should say, uh, effective on March the twelfth. So, for I guess the important thing relative to the schools in our area, that means uh, effective March twenty or I should say March fourteenth instead of March twenty first. That goes into effect. What, is, what does that mean to you in this regard? I mean, obviously, everybody wants to, to this is another sign of returning to normal, but um, is, it, is it a case where people should, uh, if they want to keep wearing a mask, they're totally entitled to do that, and those that don't want to, don't have to? I think you're, you've made a good point there, Jim, that yes, the, the governor is lifting the mandate on March 12th for the majority of environments, but it will not be lifted in uh, healthcare environments, hospitals, outpatients, dental facilities and pharmacies, long-term care, public transit, taxis. Uh, one thing that did change from last week is uh, they will not be required to be worn on school buses. Um, that was a federal requirement and that has been lifted. You know, certainly correctional facilities are high risk and masks need to be worn there as well. But in the majority of other uh, public environments, such as schools and restaurants and libraries, churches, gyms, uh, grocery stores, masks won't be required. But we also need to realize that people still do want to wear masks. There are some people who find it a much safer way for them to conduct their lives. And we need to you know, allow people to do what they feel is important now at this stage 
of disease transmission in the community. They need to do what's comfortable for them and what they feel safe is doing. And so um, absolutely uh, being able to wear masks if you feel that it is important for you to do so is an acceptable way to conduct your life. And, and one thing to point out, I think, is is the piece that gets and has been, I guess, a combination of confusing and frustrating for people throughout this is that things have changed and there are federal requirements, there are state requirements, there are local requirements. And so now this, at least in Washington state, this mask requirement is lifted on a, on these effective dates and there's no desire of the health district to, to keep any of these in, in, in effect because I guess that is an option, but that's not, not the intention here, correct? Right. Health districts can certainly... Um mandate masks, but uh, Benton Franklin Health District has absolutely no intention of uh, going against that, and masks will certainly be no longer mandated here in Benton Franklin County starting March 12th as well. What would you, uh, relative to the schools, and I know one of the issues, and we really haven't touched on it for a few weeks, is the whole issue of vaccination and in all populations, but I know those that are eligible in the younger age groups um, we're not seeing any appreciable increase all across the spectrum of age groups, but where are we with vaccinations and especially on those younger populations as we get to go back to school without masks soon? Sure. It, it definitely, um, in my world of public health, stresses the fact that we need to have our kids vaccinated. The very, very young are still not eligible yet, but those kids that are eligible Vaccines are certainly an extremely important mitigation strategy to help prevent the spread within that school environment, even though, you know, historically, especially with Omicron, we haven't seen as um, severe of disease. It doesn't mean that there isn't loss of time in school when you're sick and parents staying home with a sick child. And I, I think that's what families need to look at is what risks are they as a family willing to assume? Um, my child is going to catch COVID. If my child catches COVID, then they have to stay home from school because they're ill and you shouldn't send ill children to school. That's a disruption of their learning environment. That's a disruption perhaps of your work day and your ability to go to work. And so having healthy children who can attend school regularly is important for many, many reasons. Um, and the most being keeping kids in school, we know how difficult it's been on them, and keeping them healthy so that they can stay in that classroom is just so much better for them, for their mental health, for their learning, than being at home sick. So as we begin to fortunately transition to more normal surroundings, with with the, the mask requirements being lifted, where is the health district's largest concern? Does it remain in these vulnerable populations and, I guess, long-term care-type facilities, places where the most vulnerable are living? Right. As we um, change our focus, and we certainly are transitioning as a health district over the next month or so into what will be considered our new norm in how we deal with COVID, which we very much like any communicable disease that we work with here at the health district, our focus is going to be more doing case investigations in those um, high-risk environments rather than calling up every person who tests positive and having a conversation with them. We will be focusing our attention on working with vulnerable populations such as in jails, long-term care, 
um, healthcare settings and certainly any of those congregate living type of settings like jails uh, where transmission happens very quickly and can be rather detrimental to the health of those populations. So we will be targeting our strategies more on those populations than the individual person in our community. We'll also be really trying to work with our community providers to assure they have access to the treatment medications that are out there. They understand how to get them and, and how to take care of their patients, as well as supporting our community on how to access testing. Because at some point in the not too distant future, we trust that our community testing site will no longer be uh, as necessary as it is still today, and we will need to help support our community members in how to access testing for the long run, because as we've said time and time again, COVID isn't going to go away. Uh, so we, we need to figure out how to make it more of a normal part of dealing with a disease in our everyday life. So with that, maybe let's conclude on that, the topic of testing, because I know even at the federal level, they're talking about making testing even more readily available. I know at the statewide level, I think I was reading today that people can order up more free tests as long as they're continuing to be available. What's your advice for people as we move forward in this loosened up uh, requirements on things of what they should do with these tests if they're, when should they utilize them? Yeah, we really encourage people to have uh, you know, several test kits at home. And if you've been exposed to COVID, wait five days and test. If you are feeling symptomatic and like you might have COVID, then you absolutely should test at that point in time. And if you get a negative test and you really think, you know, I have every reason to believe I could be positive, retesting in a few days is, is advised as well. But if you are sick and you're testing negative, we strongly, strongly encourage people, stay home, take care of yourself, don't expose others to whatever virus it is that you might be harboring in your body that is making you sick and that you could pass on to others. I have just a minute or so left, and I wanted to ask you one question that we used to be a regular question during this time before COVID came along, and that how are we doing with the flu? You know, still, we are not seeing significant flu uh, in the community. There are certainly cases out there. It's not completely gone. And even across Washington State, there, there is, has been some flu deaths reported across Washington State. But this season, once again, seems very, very low. And, and understanding that the mitigation strategies for flu, such as the distancing and especially the wearing of masks, that's the spread of flu as well. And and in the final 30 seconds, you made a good point earlier on, and that's uh, everybody has gotten so used to checking your data at the health district for, uh, so frequently. Uh, just remind our listeners what's happening and why. It, we are changing our data dashboard, and we will be updating our hospitalization and case rates on Tuesdays and Thursdays, and then on Thursday, adding the death data. It just has become important for us to really um, take a close look at our data, exactly how meaningful is it at that time. And we've realized with our decrease in case rates that really twice a week is a very good amount of time to give a snapshot picture of the trends that are happening within our community. 
There you go, Heather Hill with the Benton Franklin Health District. Thanks so much, as always, for your time. We'll talk again next week, back with the second half of Cadillac on Call in a moment. listening to Cadillac on Call on 610 KONA. This program is not a substitute for direct consultation with your own health care provider. Always consult your health care provider for your specific condition, especially if you have or suspect you may have a medical problem. Now back to Cadillac on Call. Here again, Jim Hall. Welcome back to Cadillac on Call, presented by the Cadillac Foundation. You know, our world has been beset with so many challenges over the past two years and the past two weeks. The COVID crisis on a long-term basis and the crisis in Ukraine currently in the near term. And clearly it's a stressful time, an anxiety-filled time, and especially it's for those who are directly impacted. On the hopeful side, our reminders that our future is in good hands with the caliber of young people like our next guest. Kaya Bates is a student at Chiawana High School in Pasco. She's also Miss Tri-Cities Outstanding Team. And it's her personal experiences with anxiety and depression that has put her in the spotlight, raising awareness about helping people who are impacted with mental health challenges. And it is this platform that has inspired Kaya to develop ways to help her peers and others cope with anxiety or depression. And I guess, Kaya, my first question uh, to you, thanks, first of all, so much for joining us and sharing your story with us. Um, you're 17 years old, and, and share a little bit about what you've been through that's gotten you to this point and why you're so passionate about this cause. Yes. So when I was younger, I had suffered with selective mutism for six years while um, I was in elementary school, and it a severe anxiety disorder in which a person can't speak in certain social situations. And in my case, it was really hard for me to talk to people outside of my immediate family. And I have a really, really hard time talking to teachers, students, other adults. And so I had a hard time expressing myself in words. And when um, when it came down to me trying to express myself, I had to use other methods to kind of calm down when I was feeling anxious. And so something that I used was um, fidget tools. And um, and that really helped me as well as getting outside of my comfort zone. And each time it got easier and easier. And now, I mean, I'm an advocate for mental health, and I think it is super important for kids to learn healthy coping strategies. So you, you called it selective mutism. Is that what it is? And, and, and if you would, just if you wouldn't mind sharing what you're comfortable talking about, what was that like? And, and just how frustrating was that for you? Yes. So when I was in kindergarten, I wouldn't even talk to my teacher or any of the students around me except for one student. And it actually affected everything. I mean, it was really, really hard for me to be in class. I didn't really feel comfortable there because I had a lot of anxiety. And I didn't actually talk to my teacher for about eight months. And um, I would just whisper to my friend. And it affected my academic learning as well. I wouldn't write. I had a hard time participating in group discussions. And even in first and second grade, that happened to me, too. I wouldn't participate in class. But and it, it was really hard for me. I mean, I didn't I didn't really feel 
safe anywhere because I had just a lot of anxiety and there was just a lot of people that I didn't feel comfortable talking to everywhere. And so it was just really, really hard for me to kind of be in public places because I had just had a lot of anxiety built up inside. And people would fast forward today and to listen to you and they just find that so hard to believe. I'm guessing it wasn't just something that that you just snapped your fingers and it went away. It took a lot of effort on your part and a lot of work and a lot of perseverance to, to get to where you are today with this comfort level. Oh, of course. I mean, I'm, I'm a believer in repetition and just keep getting outside of your comfort zone because that's what helped for me as well as learning healthy coping strategies. I mean, without getting outside of my comfort zone and challenging myself, I mean, I would definitely not be here today. <laughs> Well, it's so impressive and so inspirational, and it's part of your Miss Tri-Cities Outstanding Teen Efforts. I know you've adopted what's called a social impact initiative with the acronym CALM. Tell us what that is and what that's all about. Yes. So my social impact initiative is Staying Calm, Overcoming Mental Health Issues and Stereotypes. And so my goal is to spread factual and positive awareness for mental health, as well as trying to break that stigma. And I also want to share healthy coping strategies and how to help someone or yourself if you're dealing with a mental health condition. And um, CALM is actually an acronym, and so it stands for Choices, Attitude, Learn, and Meditate. And it describes a series of steps in which a person can try to feel calm in their lives because I associate calm with feeling peace, especially with all that turmoil that's going on. And that's why I created this the social impact initiative because I, it stems from per, such personal experience for me. And I know it's already having an impact. You have these, they're called regulation kits, as you call them. What are those? And, and they're in, in effect in some schools around the Tri-Cities already? Yes. So like I, like I mentioned earlier, I had to use a lot of coping strategies and kind of um, try to regulate my stress in ways other than expressing myself in words because I had such a hard time doing that. And the thing that I used the most was fidget tools. And so I wanted to actually bring that into the classroom because when I was younger, I did not have those resources and I didn't know how to regulate myself in the classroom. And so um, inside a regulation kit are a lot of fidget tools as well as an instruction sheet for kids to learn how to best utilize that kit and it also has um, a meat little monster book it's a coloring book gifted to me by nami tri-cities and inside it's there to show kids how to identify and handle their feelings and so i also wanted to give every kid the equal opportunity to use those in the classroom and actually i've been able to deliver kits to 14 out of the 17 schools in pasco and i've raised over twenty-three thousand dollars towards my initiative Hooray for you. I have two more questions for you that I'd like to address, if you will. The first one has to do, I know you have the state Miss Outstanding team uh, coming up uh, later this spring. Is that correct? So I guess that's your near-term focus, right? What ha- What's after that? Yes. I mean, if I hopefully when I win Miss Washington, I go to nationals and compete for Miss America's Outstanding Team. But my 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 plan for the future is to keep advocating for mental health, keep sharing on my social media page um, on Instagram. It's at Calm Choices and to keep providing regulation kits for kids because I know how much of an impact that can be in the classroom. 
Well, I think you've nailed the interview portion <laughs> that, <you'll, laughs> that you'll be encountering. It's such an impressive uh, what you're doing. And, and I'd like to just have you leave us, if you would, if there's somebody, maybe a contemporary of yours, a high school student or around in, that's in our listening audience that might be facing anxiety or depression or some other mental health issue or, or just uh, any, someone of any age that, that's in this, what's your advice to them? My advice is to just keep trying and don't be afraid to ask for help because that was something that was always really hard for me. But I've learned over the years asking for help has been such a positive experience for me and to to not also to not be ashamed of of anxiety or depression because there's so many people in this world that are actually struggling with the same thing and it, it doesn't make you any different from anybody else and I just believe that as long as we just try to advocate for ourselves and for others, as well as keeping a positive light on it and asking for help, I think that can really make a difference. Well, I know somebody myself has dealt with anxiety over my lifetime, and I'm a heck of a lot older than you. And I know it's something that never totally goes away. So it's something that it, it's always out there. And so I think it's great <laughs> advice to acknowledge it and, and be aware of it. And I just want to thank you for uh, what you're doing and sh- being so willing to share your story. And I wish you all the best with uh, whatever's next, uh, especially in the, the next competitions that you have. Oh, thank you so much. And yes, thank you for having me. Kaya Bates, thanks so much for all you are doing and sharing your expertise with us. And again, she has an Instagram page that she touched on and that uh, to find some resources that you might find helpful if you're in this uh, situation as well. Just search on Instagram at Calm Choices. Again, our thanks to Kaya. Back with the final minutes of Cadillac on Call right after this. You're listening to Cadillac on Call on 610 KONA. This program provides general information only. Any comments or information presented are strictly for educational purposes. Cadillac and 610 KONA do not endorse any of the suggestions made by the presenter or callers. Now back to Cadillac on Call. Once again, Jim Hall. Our final segment on Cadillac on Call presented by the Cadillac Foundation and our concluding segment shines a light on a group of dedicated volunteers at Cadillac Regional Medical Center. They are members of the Cadillac Auxiliary, an organization that has been around almost as long as Cadillac itself. Now, the pandemic certainly restricted these volunteers and their ability to serve in person at the hospital. But amazingly, they still raised money in support of the Catholic Foundation to the tune of $120,000 in the past year. And with us today is Rodney Wright, a member of the Catholic Auxiliary Board, its most recent president. And uh, Rodney, thanks so much for taking the time with us. And I know that, as I touched on, the Auxiliary has been around, gosh, 70-plus years and I, I know the work just has been incredible, but I know COVID has impacted you too. So talk is, is your big priority now is just inviting people to come back and, and join the effort? Yeah, Jimmy, thanks for having me on. You're welcome. Uh, yeah, we had, we had uh, 287 volunteers before this whole COVID start, uh, you know, started. And then once it hit, uh, of course, we weren't able to go into the hospital for uh, quite some time. Uh, about a year and a half, two years. And then uh, now we're down to about 58 volunteers. And so we have a desperate need to get people in there for the different services that we provide. Um, And we are able to go back into the hospital now uh, with certain limitations and and not all services are open. 
but we do have a high need for uh, like the orchard lobby. We have a person at the orchard lobby. We have a sewing group. We have Cadillac Creations. We have the emergency room uh, escort. They're in desperate need. We have the gift shop and we have the main entrance. Uh, the ICU is in, in desperate need of some uh, volunteers as well. And uh, so, I mean, the services are there. We provide great work uh, and assistance to all the, the staff there at the hospital. Uh, and we just, we just need some more help. It's, it's an incredible group of people. And I know regardless of the number, those that are there are just serving of their own time, which is an, an incredible gift. Uh, to the patients, and I know you touched on some of the the wonderful roles that pl- that people play. But just as an example, you know, just staffing an information desk at the entrance to the hospital. Obviously, hospitals can be very complex and intimidating places. And to have a friendly face there when when you walk in is that what that's all about? And then really the entire role of everything that's done. Yeah. So uh, we go through an orientation, and and we kind of talk about that and. And how uh, you you know you greet them. Uh, there's a certain way to greet them, and then you you know want to let them know that uh, we're going to walk you through this whole process, and uh, we take them to the registration, get them registered, and uh, and then we make sure they get to where they're going. Um, but we don't just leave them there unless they're going to be there a while. Uh, we'll kind of stay there for you know if they're going to be there for this I don't know 10 15 minutes, we'll wait for them, and then we'll bring them on back and it's just just about making sure that it's a a friendly environment where they're not so uh, hyped up about this whole COVID thing and they they can relax and actually make it an enjoyable experience rather than one of of fear and and the unknown. And just by the nature of coming into the hospital right regardless of whether it's COVID or otherwise it's it's a it's it can be a stressful time. It can be, and it's something that we, we take seriously, and we, we try our best just to, to make sure that it's not so stressful. You know, be a friend to them and, and let them know that we're there. And that's basically, uh, like you said, regardless if it's COVID or not, it's, it's just something that we do, and we're happy to be there. Uh, and and it's, just, it's just a great environment to, to volunteer. I, would, I have to point out, uh, you touched on the sewing groups there, are two sewing groups. There's a room, actually, for people that are listening. There's a room down in the hospital, down by the facilities department, full of sewing machines, and they've been there for years. And I know, what is it? I think it's Tuesdays and Thursdays, right, Rodney, where there's groups of people that come in, and they sew items not only for the gift shop, but they sew items to whether it's repairing clinical items that are used in, in some of the clinical units to help, uh, whether they're pillows and, and things of that nature. So these are these are very creative people, but very uh, talented people with their sewing talents. Right. On Tuesday, we have the regular sewing group. They go in there and they'll sew, they'll sew blankets. They'll sew, like if we have uh, like a, um, a special day coming up, a holiday, you know, maybe Valentine's Day, they'll sew some Valentine's stuff. Uh, for the patients. We do the heart pillows for those having heart surgeries. Um, and we even reuse a lot of the the uh, material that the hospital would normally throw out. We actually reuse that, and we they'll sew uh, bags, you know, carry bags and stuff that we also sell at um, fundraising 
uh, events. And uh, and then on Thursday, the Cadillac Creations meet, and they also uh, things for the younger kids, the the children that are uh, in the hospital for whatever reason. Uh, and they they sew together. I can't remember the name of it now, but it it's a it's it's like a a little blanket that allows them to uh, interact with things on the blanket. So it it just helps them um, take their mind off of the illness part of it. Before we get to uh, how folks can uh, contact uh, to join up and become a volunteer, why do you do it, Rodney? Well, you know, I had a gunshot uh, in 2009, and uh, I, I saw the volunteers and, and all that they do and all that they did for me. And I thought, you know, that what better way to give back to people that saved my life, you know? And and so I give back uh, just for my personal reasons. Other people give back just because they want to, you know, do something for the community in general. And for whatever reason, uh, if you'd like to volunteer, we certainly would love to have you there. But that, that's the reason why I volunteer. Well, Rodney, thanks to everyone. We ho- we'll get those numbers back into the 200 shortly. If you'd like information on how to become part of the Cadillac Auxiliary, call Carly at Cadillac and her number, 509-942-2949. That's 509-942-2949. And one last thing, the gift shops that, uh, that uh, Rodney mentioned, there is one at the HealthPlex. There's one right inside the hospital. All of the proceeds operated by the auxiliary go to the Catholic Foundation and provide wonderful service and wonderful uh, dollars and bit to benefit patients at Catholic. Rodney, thanks so much to all of your team, and we look forward to those numbers uh, continuing to go up. Our thanks to all of our guests this evening, and thank you for listening. We'll talk again next week.